Ephesians chapter 2, and I'll be uh, reading verses 1 through verse 7 of Ephesians 2. Listen now to the reading of God's holy word once again. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this, his holy word. A gracious God in heaven. Father, we again... Rejoice and give thanks that you, uh, for the great gift that you've given to us in your word. And as we come to this passage, as we, as we consider this topic this evening, we pray that you would uh, truly give us insight and understanding uh, to see this low condition which man fell into, and yet to the great and glorious hope of the gospel that Jesus has secured for us, the good news that there is salvation and forgiveness available to us. And so we just pray that you would have your blessing upon our time together this evening. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, total depravity is the term that is often used to describe the sinful nature of mankind. And of course, this doctrine is, uh, is key to having a proper biblical understanding, not only of, of our human nature, but also, of course, of the doctrine of salvation through Jesus Christ. And of course, Ephesians chapter 2 is one of the important passages that clearly demonstrates this truth, as the Apostle Paul asserts here, that our natural spiritual state is that we were dead in trespasses and sins. And though Paul is speaking spiritually, of course, the literal sense of the word dead really carries full force. We are dead in sin, and of course, a dead person can't do anything, let alone something good, like choose salvation. Paul reinforces this when he implies that we are dead and in need of being made alive. He goes on to describe this dead spiritual state as being uh, a son of disobedience. And then in verse 3, living our lives in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That is our nature, children of wrath. That is children deserving of God's just and holy wrath. But the good news Paul shares with the Ephesians is that though they were this way, they've now been made alive. And he says in verses 4 and 5, But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. Uh, 
And this is what makes the gospel such good news. Is that we were dead in sins. That we were in rebellion against God. And yet, out of His abounding grace and mercy, He saved us. He saved us through Jesus Christ. And He made us alive. Even spiritually, raising us up from the dead. And bringing us to new and eternal life. This is where we end up by God's grace. But... How did we become spiritually dead in the first place? How is it that we are born totally depraved, that we are children of wrath, and that we are deserving of God's just condemnation? Well, as we continue in our confessional themes study, we come to chapter 6 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which addresses the fall of man, sin, and the punishment of sin. Now, when we talk of the fall of man into sin, of course, we go back to uh, the Garden of Eden, the passage that we read earlier in uh, Genesis 3. God had created Adam and Eve wholly upright and with the freedom of will to choose between good and evil. And, of course, this was evidenced by the fact that God made this covenant with Adam in the form of a law. In Genesis 2, the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now this covenant is often called the covenant of works sometimes, for obvious reasons, also called the covenant of life. If Adam chose to obey God, then he would live. And if he chose to disobey God, well then he would surely die. And that was the warning that God had given him. And we say that Adam had free will and that Adam was able to freely make this choice. No one forced Adam's hand one way or the other. And so when Adam and Eve ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they chose disobedience and ultimately they chose death. And because of this, Adam and Eve were both morally responsible for their sin And Adam, of course, more so since he was the covenant or the federal head. But Adam and Eve, though fully responsible, they certainly had some encouragement or we might say enticement. The confession, paragraph one, notes that our our first parents, being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. And so Satan seduced and tempted Adam and Eve in several ways. First, he appeared not as a fallen angel, identifying with he didn't have a name tag saying, I'm Satan, the fallen angel. No, but he appeared in the form of a serpent. The serpent was one of the common animals that would have been found there in the garden. Second, he directed his enticement toward the woman Eve, not because she was of weaker mind, but perhaps mainly because she was dependent upon her husband for the word of God and the instruction in the law that God had earlier given to Adam. And then thirdly, Satan subverted the authority of God's word. The first thing he said, did God really say? And then with the blatant lie, you will not surely die. And then fourthly, Satan planted the thought in their hearts that God was somehow shortchanging them. 
In Genesis 3, verse 5, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so there was a sense that, hey, God is, is holding something back from us, which would stir up envy and even jealousy. And so Satan is a master at deceit and temptation, but it should be underscored that Satan doesn't make anyone do anything, right? We can never claim the excuse that the devil made me do it. He can tempt you, but he cannot force or compel you. He only lays the snares that at first seem appealing, and those who follow after them do so of their own volition. But the confession notes that there was perhaps another party that was involved or uh, had a somewhat of a role. This their sin God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel to permit, having purpose to order it to his own glory. Now this may be hard to understand and we may even at first think that it conflicts with what we uh, first said about Adam being fully Adam and Eve being fully responsible. But what is written here is, is certainly correct. God not only permitted the fall, but he purposed it to order it for his own glory. Now, we have seen before that God has purposed all things, even the, the actions of men. But as we noted before, this happens in such a way that God is not the author of sin. That God uses second causes to accomplish his will. Adam and Eve were willing participants in the fall, and yet God's plan and purpose wasn't thwarted, but established. As Paul notes in Romans 11, For God has commi committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. So God's purpose is to bring all glory to himself. And he does this most fully through, of course, Jesus Christ and the redemption that is secured by him. But in order for Christ to bring glory to God through the saving of sinners, well, there needs to be sinners to save. We're unable to comprehend, of course, all the ins and outs of this. And so it's for good reason that Paul follows uh, Romans 11, verse 32, with verses 33 to 36, where he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. And so the facts that God is sovereign, and that man is responsible, are certainly again difficult to sort out. They're not uh, one against the other, but they somehow work together in a great and even mysterious way that, again, our finite minds are not able to fully comprehend. Well, because of Adam and Eve's sin, they became corrupt in their nature. Again, the confession continues, By this sin they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of body and soul. And we see here that, Man's nature is changed from pure, holy, and the ability of free will to basically what's dirty, wicked, and bound to sin. But this doesn't mean the fact of man being created in the image of God is totally removed. 
RP testimony in paragraph 2 here reminds us that every man was created in the image of God. His life, therefore, whether he is regenerate or unregenerate, should be recognized as having value to himself, to society, and to God. And so the image is still retained, but of course it has been greatly marred. And so really what happens is that the godlikeness is scarcely seen. Another evidence of the corruption of man's nature is the falling out of fellowship with God. Of course, before the fall, Adam and Eve had uh, intimate union and communion with God. But after the fall, when they hear God in the garden, instead of being overjoyed at his presence, they hide themselves in shame and fear. And then ultimately, they're then banished from the garden, banished from the presence of the Lord. Because of their sin... They are now truly dead, just as God had promised, wholly defiled. And as we see in Ephesians 2, 1 describes that they are dead in trespasses and sins. But this sin nature didn't mark Adam and Eve alone. Because they were the first parents, their sin nature then passed on to all others. And with this sin nature came also the guilt of that sin. And so again, the confession continues, they being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. Now we often refer to this as original sin and has several features. First, Adam's guilt becomes our guilt. We sin because we are sinners by nature. Romans 5.12, Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. In Adam, we all sinned. And so in Adam, we're all guilty. We all fall short of the glory of God, and we all deserve the wages of sin, which is death. This This occurs through imputation. Now, imputation is an important word. It actually, it's actually an, an accounting word. Adam's sin and guilt was credited to our account uh, because Adam, again, was our representative in that covenant of works. And this is essential to, to redemption because if we claim no part in Adam's sin, well, then we can't claim any part in Christ's redemption. And that's the big danger when people want to dismiss the historical Adam. Then we run into danger because Christ comes as the second Adam. Well, our sin is imputed. First we had Adam's guilt was imputed to us. Well, then our sin, by God's grace, is imputed or transferred to Christ at the cross. And in return, Christ imputes or transfers his perfect righteousness to us. And so instead of wearing Adam's rags, we now wear Christ's righteous robes. And thirdly, we see that this sin nature extends to all by ordinary generation. That is, in some way of the normal and ordinary conception process, the sinful and guilty nature are passed on from generation to generation. And there's been a lot of uh, discussion through the ages of how exactly this is done, but we don't, don't really know how it's done. It's not like it's a virus that spreads uh, physically, but it's a spiritual passing on of this sin nature from one generation to the next. However... 
wording of the confession is very careful here. Because Jesus Christ is excluded from this because Christ was not conceived by ordinary generation, but he was rather conceived by extraordinary generation when the Holy Spirit came over the Virgin Mary and she conceived and gave birth to a son who would be called the Son of God. And it should be clearly noted that we all stand guilty before God, first and foremost, because we're sinners who are born with a sinful and guilty nature because of Adam's first sin. But there's also another way that we stand guilty before God. Paragraph 4 of the Confession says, From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to do all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. And so we see here that because we're born with original sin, we're bound to actually do and actually commit sin. We sin because we're sinners, and we're sinners because we sin. Everything we do outside of Christ is, connect, is considered sin in God's sight. Even those things which, from a human perspective, which are good and right, if they're, done, if they're not done for the glory of God alone, they are nothing but filthy rags. As the prophet Isaiah reminds us in Isaiah 64. David sings in Psalm 14, There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have, tur- they have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Even after the great judgment, that's the, the description that we're given of sinful man. And even after the great judgment of the flood, uh, we considered this a couple weeks ago in, in Bible study, uh, Genesis 8.21, that the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. So even after the flood, the flood didn't get rid of sin. It got rid of a lot of sinners, but it didn't purge the earth of sin. And so mankind is incapable of doing any good thing outside the grace of God. And this is what we call the state of total depravity or total inability. But this doesn't mean that mankind is as sinful as he could be, or that all men are equally equally sinful, that is, some compound their guilt by sinning more and more, and, and even hardening their hearts against even the slightest glimpse of light. So what does this mean? Well, for the believer in Christ, there is grace, mercy, hope, and pardon. Paul says in Romans 5, But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, and much more the grace of God, and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And this free gift brings life, and it also brings a renewed and restored fellowship with God. Again, Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our, through our Lord Jesus Christ. But even if we're redeemed by Christ, we still struggle with sin, and we still have a remnant of the sin nature in us. And so paragraph 5 of the Confession says this, This corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated, and although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, 
Yet both itself and all the motions thereof are truly and properly sin. And of course, in that wonderful passage in Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul demonstrates this most effectively as he describes the struggle between that remnant of the sinful nature, what he calls there in that passage the flesh, and the presence of the Holy Spirit within him. And it's that, you know, that what I want to do, I don't do, and that what I don't want to do, that's what I do. And it's a struggle, and it's a battle, and of course we all have lived out that battle each and every day of our lives. And so we struggle with that remnant of the sin nature in us. But the confession is also clear that it's not a mistake. And when we sin, it's not a mistake. It's not a a goof. It's not just an error. Or um, as some uh, holiness groups will claim that we can be sinless and that we we sometimes make mistakes. No, the confession is clear that when a Christian disobeys God, it is truly and properly sin. And so, yes, even as Christians, we still sin. Well, finally, to unbelievers, there are different effects. They're held accountable before God for their original sin and guilt, as well as their actual sin and guilt. And so paragraph 6 says, Every sin, both original and actual, being a transgression of the righteous law of God, and contrary thereunto, doth in its own nature bring guilt upon the sinner, whereby he is bound over to the wrath of God and the curse of the law, and so made subject to death with all miseries spiritual, temporal, and eternal. And here we see that God will bring to fruition on the unrepentant sinner the penalty that was first promised to Adam for sin and disobedience, which of course was death. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And so we will stand before the Lord on that last uh, last great day, and we will either be uh, pardoned, or we will be condemned based on our faith in Christ. So praise God, Despite this fallen sinful nature, despite the struggles that we still have with sin, we give praise to God that He has provided the sacrifice, that He has provided His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who endured the wrath and curse of God on our behalf. And so later in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, the Apostle says, For He made Him who knew no sin, that is Jesus, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And there we see the imputation, our sin upon Christ, and Christ's righteousness upon us. And of course, because of this gracious sacrifice, we who were once dead in sins and transgressions, we can be made alive in Christ Jesus by believing in Him and by resting in Him and what He's accomplished for our salvation. As those who were dead... It's impossible for us to do anything to make ourselves alive. And so then, as Paul strongly asserts in Ephesians 2, it is purely by the grace of God that we are saved. And of course, all this is done to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God in heaven, we are thankful 
for all that you have done for us. We thank you for this reminder about our own fallen sinful state, our own inability to save ourselves, and our need of a Savior. And we thank you, O God, that you have provided that Savior through us, for us through your own beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you sent. That he humbled himself and took on the likeness of sinful flesh. That he endured the miseries of this life, being tried, tempted and tried in all ways that we are yet without sin. And then he suffered the greatest humiliation when he gave himself as the once for all perfect sacrifice for our sins. When he died on the cross, that horrible, horrible way to die, all the pain that he endured, the affliction that which he felt upon his body and his soul was what we justly deserved for our sin. And yet Christ took it upon himself so that we who are your enemies, who were undeserving, can now be made alive through him. And that we can be washed and cleansed by His shed blood. That we can have peace and reconciliation with You. And be reunited with You. Standing now in Your presence without shame, without fear. And not only do we enjoy that now. But we have that as a sure and certain hope of eternal life. Standing in Your glorious presence forever and ever and ever. And so we just praise you and thank you, O God, for reminding us of these truths. And that you would continue to impress them upon each of our hearts, drawing us all closer to yourself. And again, we praise you and thank you for this, the Lord's Day. We thank you for our time to be able to worship and to fellowship together. And especially as we now prepare ourselves at the close of this day to enter into the week that lies ahead. We pray that we would remember the truth that you have given, that we would be strengthened and encouraged, that we would be faithful witnesses in this community, and that you would truly be with us as you work in us and through us for your glory and your honor and your praise. We ask now for your blessing upon us in these things. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.